Good morning, everyone. Take your Bibles out and let's go to the book of Luke. Uh, we're in Luke 16 today, and we're going to continue our study in the parables. We're in Luke 16, and I'm just going to read Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, both the parable and Jesus' application of this parable. And he said also to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and uh, charges were brought to him that this man, the manager, was wasting his, the, the rich man's, possessions. And he called him, the rich man called the manager in and said, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in an account of your management. For you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the manager from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summonsing uh, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he, the debtor, said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much does he owe you? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And the master uh, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in very much, and the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much." If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, uh, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and and money. Lord Jesus, complex parable. Please, O oh God, teach us today. Let us not hover over your word in scrutiny, trying to uh, interpret it through the lens of our experiences and our culture, but Lord, let us sit underneath your word and let it interpret us. God, please, Speak to us today. We need these words. They are the words of life. God, help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So maybe you've heard the phrase before, um, kill two birds with one stone. Anybody heard that one? Okay. So uh, it's a simple idea that you can get two things done with one action. And for a person like me who just loves and saving money and saving time, this is a great, uh, a great concept for me. Um, it, it help, it's the idea that we can, with one action, efficiently save time and energy and stress, and I just love the idea altogether. I don't use the phrase a whole lot in my everyday speech, but the idea dominates a lot of my day-to-day -day actions. <clears throat> you see, 
I am a dreamer. If you know me very well, if you spent any time with me, uh, I, you know that I am a dreamer in the future. I think about the things I'm going to do and want to do all day long, and I have a hard time maintaining things and thinking about the present. I am a big dreamer. Idea that I could kill two birds with one stone, um, it, it's sort of deeply in, it embedded in me. Um, and I, because I want to accomplish so many things, uh, the idea that I could do that makes me feel really satisfied. So here's an example. When Pillar was first getting started, um, some of you uh, know or, or may not that um, my family was the first family here to, to initiate the starting of the church. And so we came here with this idea, this vision, this dream of a church that multiplied like crazy right here at the, the headquarters of the Marine Corps and what God could use to do that. That was the initial idea and dream that compelled us to come here. And so when um, when we came here, I was living though. I was living in Orange County. I don't know if you know where that is, but if you go to Fredericksburg and and hang a uh, west and go like 15 miles, you, you'll find Orange County, the the corner of Orange County, and that's where we lived. And I'd get in my car every morning and I drive the hour plus drive to Dumfries to come here just to meet people and cultivate relationships in this community. And I hoped that uh, that, that cultivation would help root the church. And I'll never forget one day I was at my desk at my house. And I was sitting there, and I was doing what we all did back in 2005. I was reading a blog. Uh, and I know it sounds sort of funny now, but we were all doing it. Don't, don't pretend like you weren't. And, and uh, I was reading the blog, and I was introduced to this brand new concept that had been invented called an audio blog. And it was a recorded blog post that played right on your telephone. And I remember thinking, Eureka, this is incredible. I'm going to be able to both drive and learn at the same time. Uh, eventually, the audio blog name faded and the word podcast emerged to describe this new way of learning and being entertained while doing something else. It was incredible for me because uh, I, it meant I could, I could learn and, and I could drive at the same time. Two birds, one stone. I was an early adopter of podcasts. I liked them a lot. Some of you still don't really know what they are, but I like them a lot. And I love them so much that I virtually never get in the car for the last 17 years for more than just a few minutes that I don't turn a podcast on and start learning about something. And in fact, it's become, like uh, in my family, it's become a bit of a joke. Uh, I always have all these anecdotes that I learn on podcasts, and I say, oh, I was listening to a podcast today, and it said, and I'll, I'll tell my family the anecdote, and they're, they're just tired of it. And, and so for the past 17 years, I'm listening to podcasts all the time. Eventually, I started making podcasts, and, and now, today, I produce podcasts for a living. Uh, some of you don't know what I do for a living, but that's what I do for a living. Um, it all started, though, with my desire to sort of redeem my time, my desire to kill two birds with one stone. It, to understand the heart of this parable, you have to understand this simple, simple concept. Um, the concept is this, efficiency and focus, efficiency and focus are often at odds with one another. In, in other words, sometimes you just need to kill one bird with one stone. And this is something that I've had to learn the hard way. As somebody who really likes to kill multiple birds with one stone, I've had to learn it the hard way. In, in other words, sometimes you just need to, to focus. The parable will, uh, will teach us about this sort of focus that we need. The whole Bible reinforced the reality that all of life comes down to just one thing. Knowing Jesus and making him known. And the stone that we throw should be aimed directly at that. 
So before we explore the sort of innards of this parable, let me point out to you a fascinating connection that I discovered this week between this parable and the two parables we talked about in the two preceding weeks. I mean, it's, it's, it's somewhat coincidental, uh, but the last week's parable that Pastor Colby talked about was just the preceding text to this text. But then two weeks ago, we talked about, uh, from Matthew 25, uh, you remember Danny Williams, he walked through the parable of the talents with us in our last Sunday at Swan's Creek. In that parable, the parable of the talents, an employee of a rich man, uh, much like in the story that we read this morning, was condemned for using his boss's money, uh, I'm sorry, he was uh, commended, excuse me, for using his boss's money to earn more money and another man in that story the parable of the talents was called wicked because he saved his boss's money and didn't invest it and he returned it to him just as he originally got it so two weeks ago we're talking about wealth and a manager in a similar type story we learned that that god doesn't just want us to hold the things he gives us he wants us actually to use them and to to bring back a return to him Last week, Pastor Colby walked through the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 12. And like the prodigal, uh, the dishonest employee in the story we're reading today squandered what was entrusted to him. It wasn't his father's, it was his manager's, but the story is similar in that way. These two preceding parables highlight for me something that was very novel to me this week. They highlight to me um, that there are two mistakes that can be made when it comes to the issue of finances and stewardship and, and, and resources. The parable we're considering today, I believe, shows us the better middle way. Many of Jesus's parables have themes of salvation running all through them, and this one's not different. There are themes of salvation in this parable, but I'm convinced after studying this this week that this parable is primarily about the sensible or logical, in light of eternity, logical use of material possessions as we consider God and eternity. So let's understand the parable itself just, just real quickly. In Jesus's day and even now, rich people trusted other people to manage their wealth for them. The wealthy man in this story trusted a manager to take what he had and to invest that wealth so that he could make more money for the parable. You can think of ways in which you do this yourself. You uh, entrust some of your money to somebody else and you trust that they know better how to uh, bring a return than, than you do. So this dishonest employee, though, he was about to lose his job because um, he mishandled the boss's wealth. This uh, kind of the, the, the fact that he finds out that he's about to lose his job sort of freaks him out a little bit. And so he go uh, because he knows himself, uh, the parable tells us that he knows himself to be sort of lazy and prideful. So he, he goes um, instead and, and takes a strange action, knowing about he, that he's about to lose his job um, and he would be put into this uncomfortable situation. He decides to track down the individuals who owe his boss money and catch up with them. And when he catches up with them, he, he works with them in, in a kind way to, to them to earn favor with them by negotiating deals on their behalf with the master that put him, the steward, in their favor. It's a, a sort of complex thing that he does there, but, but he does that. 
And when he catches up with them, he works to negotiate favor by reducing their debts. And, and he's not just being a nice guy here. The parable teaches us that what he's doing is he's foreseeing, he's looking down the road at an unemployed future in front of him. And the big plot twist of the story is not really what he does. The plot twist of the story is the reaction of the manager. We assume that when the manager finds out what he does, as we read the story, the, man, the manager's uh, or the, the owner is going to be mad. But actually, that's not what happens at all. The plot twist of the story is the, the boss actually compliments the man for what he calls shrewdness. His shrewdness. Now, interestingly, the word shrewdness, like the biblical definition of the word shrewdness, it's interchangeable with the word wisdom. So, so, um, uh, or, or, uh, or, so, so just when you think about this word, it sort of has a negative connotation uh, for us, but I want you to, to, in your mind, sub it with the word wisdom here. So what I'd like to do today in, in regard to this parable is to focus our attention a little bit away from the parable itself. So we've got the parable and we understand it. We just walked through it. Um, but the parable itself is, is sort of packed with contextual nuance and honestly, it leaves us a lot of room to sort of speculate about the meaning. A lot of commentators, another way to say that, a lot of commentators have a lot of different opinions about the meaning of this text. And there's all kinds of speculation. In fact, when I surveyed uh, different biblical scholars and what they thought about this text, it was really all over the map in terms of what it thought about the text. So, so much of the week as I was thinking through it, I was wrestling with where I'm going to land. Which scholars' views am I going to adopt? And then I realized that the second half of the text is Jesus telling us what it means. So why do I need to go through and tell you what all the scholars think it means when Jesus actually says exactly what he thinks it means? So I'm going to do two things here. I'm going to sort of admit to you that I still don't really get totally all that's meant in the parable. And if you think you do, then way to go. Um, but I'm going to talk to you about what Jesus says at the end of the parable and I don't get all the cultural nuances. I'm imagining if I'm a first century person, all that stuff makes sense to me, but I'm not, so it doesn't. And I'm just going to tell you what Jesus has to say about the parable, and hopefully we'll walk away with some very clear things that we can act on today, where if I were to dig into the nuances of the parable itself, I think we'd walk away more confused than we started. So in other words, I'm going to be, spend the next, I could either spend the next 30 minutes explaining first century customs and phrases but I don't want to do that. I just want to beeline right to Jesus' point that he's trying to make for his disciples and for you and I. So he draws out four specific applications, and I want to just look at each of those applications really quickly. Number one, he tells us that we are to, as, as managers, we are to leverage the resources we are entrusted. We are to leverage those resources for kingdom purposes. That means that whatever you have, and I'm not just limiting this to money, but your wealth, your possessions, your skills, your abilities, your talents, your relational equity, your friendships, your network, whatever is yours is not yours. It is God's. It was granted to you by God. It is to be used to leverage for kingdom purposes in the world. Look at verse 8. 
For the sons of this world, Jesus says, talking about the parable, the sons of this world are more shrewd or wise in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So what Jesus is saying here is actually non-Christians are, possess more wisdom in the way they relate to other people in business than Christians tend to possess in the way they relate to other people as it pertains to leveraging for the kingdom's purposes. Don't misread this. The master isn't approving of the conduct of the manager. I think that's some of what gets us hung up here. We look at the, the conduct of the manager and we sort of think, is Jesus actually saying he did a good thing? And the answer is no. He's not even commenting at all on that. Don't misread it. The master isn't approving of his conduct. He's praising his ingenuity. Uh, he's praising that he has figured out a way to advance when there really seems to be no way at all. And he's saying the children of light, the children of God, need to have that same ingenuity when it comes to accomplishing things for God, when it comes to, to leveraging what they have for the purposes of the kingdom. The same ingenuity that causes us to start businesses and accomplish amazing feats in our life to build our own possessions and wealth in our own kingdom that same ingenuity needs to be applied to the way that we steward what we have for the glory of God in the world in the proclamation of his name among all peoples. This is so cool. This is what makes a family not go on vacation to France, but go on mission to France. I mean, it's, it's loony by worldly standards, but it's actually taking the sort of intensity that everybody around us has for, their, for the building of self and applying it as a Christian to the building of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is saying that the businessmen of his day, the sons of this world he calls them, are more wise, they're more bold, they're more forward-thinking in the conducting of business for worldly wealth than and they're more shrewd than people, the people of God are, than the sons of light, as he calls them in the text. Here's the thing about wisdom and shrewdness. It takes incredible focus. That's why I started with the two birds, one stone thing. Like, if you set off into this world trying to both be wealthy yourself, have, have things for yourself, possess things all for yourself, and aim at the target of building your own kingdom and building God's kingdom, you will find that it is impossible to do. The text ends with the very idea, it is impossible to serve both God and money. You have to be able to, to lay one of them down to pick the other one up. So this is the thing about wisdom and shrewdness. It takes incredible focus. In my experience, if I really want something, if I really, really want something, I will figure out a way to do it. I get this... I get this, uh, uh, this quality from my mom. Some of you got to meet my mom. She was part of our church for a little while before she passed away. But she, has this, she had this incredible ability to get anybody around her to do whatever she wanted by any means necessary. Uh, I mean, she was, she was a master at it. She was, she was handicapped and she was in a wheelchair. And, and she couldn't do a lot of stuff for herself. But she got excellent at getting people to do stuff for her. And it was an art. I mean, watching her was like mesmerizing at times, getting her to do things. I remember uh, one time she got a, uh, an apartment. Um, and the apartment had a no-pet policy. And so she, she decided that, um, <clears throat> that um, 
she really wanted a pet. She wanted her pet to be able to move into this apartment with her. She had a, a dog, a little disgusting dog. And, and she wanted the dog to move in the apartment with her. And so she decided that she was going to get the dog in the apartment. So she, she went to the apartment complex and she said, hey, can my dog move into the apartment? You know, I'm an old lady. I'm in a wheelchair. Can my dog move in the apartment? They said, no, we have a no pet policy. And my mom said, my mom said, well, and they said, we only allow service animals. And my mom said, well, he's a service animal. And they said, he, he is? And I said, she said, yes. Yes, of course. He serves me wonderfully. <laughs> and they said, who trained this service animal? And she said, well, I did. He's a wonder and she got the dog in the apartment. They let the dog live in the apartment. It's the only dog in the whole building because of her, her just shrewdness and her ingenuity. And I just thought... I went there and I saw the dog there. I just, oh, mom, like, oh, my goodness. You know, so this is the kind of, like, intensity with which we go to accomplish the things we want, right? I mean, that's a silly story, but every one of us has something in here that we really, really, really wanted. And we're going to move heaven and earth to get it. It's, it, it. You figure out a way. I won't take no for an answer when I'm in this zone. I press every button. I turn every knob. Then I go back and I check them all again to make sure they were all pressed right and turned right. I'll do the unexpected. I'll do the extraordinary to get what I want. Jesus is saying here the people of God should have that kind of determination, that kind of dexterity when it comes to kingdom causes. Oh, like we do not think about kingdom causes that way, do we? I mean, we're measuring, like, do I have a little margin in my life so I can give a little bit to, to the kingdom? What, what is the amount that I can, like, hive off from the, the wellspring of, of resources I'm giving to myself? What's the little, like, tiny bit I can hive off just so I don't feel so bad about, about the, the river of resources I'm flowing right into my own self? The people of God should have this kind of determination toward kingdom causes. We all have the capacity to have this kind of intensity. That's the thing. All of us have the capacity. We know it because we do it for ourselves. We know we can do it. We just have opted to funnel those resources to ourselves. The kind of intensity that energizes us to stay up late and get up early to reach a goal. What Jesus is inviting us to here is a worthier goal. What, he, what he's saying is that we can, we can have that sort of intensity toward a more worthy goal. I became a Christian in the summer of 1994, and I was sitting um, in Jekyll Island, Georgia, at the time when I prayed to receive Jesus. I was sitting on an electrical transformer. Um, it was nighttime. I was sitting next to a prison chaplain named Tommy Jervis, and, and um, I pr we prayed to receive Christ. I lifted up my head, and Tommy said to me something that I won't ever forget. He said, Clint... When I lived for myself, he's talking about himself, Tommy. He said, when I lived for myself, I lived with the most incredible intensity. There was nothing I wouldn't do to make myself happy. Now that I live for Christ, I seek to live with that same sort of intensity. Putting all of my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength into my walk with God. And I challenge you to do the same. And I have never forgot that. I've never forgot that. And the, the, I never forgot it because it was true of me too. I did. I lived totally for myself with fierce intensity. And I did, I did want to live for Jesus with that much vigor. I, I have a desire for that. I, I love God. I want his kingdom purposes to prevail. And I want my life to be marked by kingdom dedicatedness. 
That means that what this means practically is that I will harness any resource I can get my hands on for kingdom purposes. I will leverage every relationship, every possession for eternity. I will use every skill. I'll use every talent I have for the advantage of the purposes of God. And I think it's a fair question for us as Jesus' followers. After reading a text like this, it's a fair question for us to ask, what do I leverage my resources for? The second thing Jesus is trying to say to us here, it's not just that that, um, we should leverage our resources for kingdom purposes, but it's also that we should invest our resources in kingdom purposes. Look at verse 9. I tell you, uh, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That phrase is confusing there. Uh, Granted, we'll go back to it. By means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So Jesus, what Jesus called, uh, called it unrighteous wealth, he's talking uh, about the riches of this life, the riches of this world, the riches that promise everything and deliver nothing. The riches that promise us security and satisfaction. The riches that we depend on for our very happiness. They are wicked masters because they not only don't deliver what they promise, but they rob us of that which actually provides true and lasting satisfaction by providing an alluring but unfulfilling substitute. You see, it does this double evil for us. Like, self-focused wealth, unrighteous wealth, as he calls it. Um, Unrighteous wealth does this double evil to us by by, uh, being a a substitute that actually causes us to be hungrier in the long run. Jesus talks about this, and we read it at the top of the service today. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. He says it so plainly, doesn't he? I mean, you, you really can't get more direct than that. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Even like rationalizes why we shouldn't lay it up here because in this place it just gets destroyed. And where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also, Jesus says in Matthew 6. So what we see here is that we should invest our resources in God's purposes in kingdom purposes. And third, Jesus' third application is we should be faithful with our resources for kingdom purposes. Look what he says. Uh, he says, uh, uh, one who is faithful in very little is also in faithful, faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, which is like worldly wealth, Who will entrust you with true riches? That's heavenly wealth. Like how would we ever be entrusted with the riches of God? The rationale here is how would God ever give us the riches of his presence and his kingdom when we we can't even handle temporal riches? If you've not been faithful to that which is another's, he says, who will give you that which is your own? Well, it's pretty good logic. As a Christian, we are to be faithful with our resources and good managers of our resources, the resources that God trusts us with as stewards. And in the parable, Jesus highlights that we, that we must do this faithfully. Now, I think faithful has been hijacked a little bit when it comes to stewardship responsibilities. And I want to I like 
zoom in on that word for just a second. Faithful, like even the word itself, faith-filled. Faith-filled. Earlier I referenced the, the parables we studied in the previous weeks. There were the parable of the talents where the wicked man tucked his talent away in a hole and then gave it back to his boss just as uh, he had given it, uh, his boss had given it to him originally. And then the boss called him wicked and lazy when he did that. Remember that parable? And, and then the parable of the prodigal son where the younger son squandered all that was his father's on reckless living. So let me ask you, considering the two lessons of those two parables on, on stewardship, what does it mean to be faithful with little or much? So, like, the ditches on the two sides of the road are we do nothing with what God gives us. We're fearful. We bury it. Or on the other side, we squander it in reckless, selfless living. There has to be something between them, right? There has to be something between them. Well, according to the parable of the talents, faithful uh, stewardship for sure does not mean storing up all your money in low-yield savings or retirement accounts. Does not mean maintaining surface relationships with all of the people that God has put into your life. It does not mean using your talents, your skills, your abilities, your home, your vehicles, your toys, only for your own purposes, only to make your kingdom larger, it, it makes me think of the Olympics and the, um, the balance beam. I mean, just imagine for a minute, if we tuned onto the Olympics and, uh, and we were to watch Simone Biles and she's standing there um, she's standing there on the balance beam, and the whole world is watching her and looking at her. And all of a sudden, she's struck with the fear of falling, or the fear of hurting herself, or the fear of failing. And so instead of, instead of doing what you would imagine her to do, she just sort of squats down and like wraps her legs around the pole. I mean, can, can you imagine if she spent her whole routine wrapped around the balance beam, and then when it was, when it was all over, she... <laughs> I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? It would be ludicrous if she did that. This is, in essence, what we do with our lives when we take the gifts, talents, abilities, passions that God has entrusted to us, and we... Hug the beam. God has given us resources for his kingdom purpose that we, might, that we might go and make his name known in the world. And you have gifts. And you have abilities that other people in this body need. Other people in this community need. And other people all over the world need. And they will not get it if you withhold it. Like the dishonest manager, we cannot take anything with us when we depart this life. He knew, 
He knew he wasn't trying to, to grab a little extra cash out of, out of the, the folks that he was, he was supposed to get to pay up for himself so that he could go on with just a little bit more. He knew that that wasn't going to do it. He knew that, that he couldn't take anything with him when he departed that role. Even during this life, our, our savings can be destroyed by inflation, by market crashes, by theft, by confiscation, by lawsuits, by war, by natural disaster, by building up large, building up large savings accounts has no security for us in this life. The world is too fragile. Listen, friends, it is the unfaithful steward that doesn't do anything risky or scary for God. When I said stewardship, faithfulness has been hijacked. Most Christians think stewardship means saving and hoarding everything you have. That is not faithful stewardship. If you live that way, the master will say to you, you wicked and lazy servant. The middle way, the road between that and lavish spending on oneself, the road between those ditches is to use the resources that God has entrusted to us, that he's given into our hand, to use the work of our hands, in generous living and investing in those things that bring a return that can further be leveraged for kingdom purposes. That is the middle way. The middle way is that we would work hard and invest wisely and, 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 and put our resources in places where they're likely to produce fruit. The fourth thing I want you to see, the fourth uh, uh, point Jesus wants us to get out of this confusing parable is that we should determine that our resources are intended for kingdom purposes alone. We should determine that our resources are intended for kingdom purposes alone. So I'm going to end where I started. Don't try to kill two birds with one stone when it comes to your, your, your life of, with resources. He says in verse 13, no slave can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Either your resources, the resources of your life, are for God's pleasure and purposes alone, or they are for your pleasure and purposes alone. They will never be for both. And so, as stewards in his kingdom, what we, what we seek to do is dedicate ourselves more fully and more wholly to his purposes in the world. Jesus, just like the master in the story, he's going to call us to give an account. He's going to call us to give an account, not just of our financial life and our dealings with resources, but get it call us to give an account of our very soul. Matthew, Jesus says it plainly. He says, there will come a day when many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do many mighty works in your name? And he will respond, depart from me. You work of, of iniquity, I have never known you. And so the Jesus that stands before you today, proverbially speaking, is not just, not just urging you to give your life over to him when it comes to the stewardship of what he's entrusted you, but he's urging you to give your life over to him as an act of worship. 
because you love him, to dedicate yourself to him, to say to him, God, I trust you. I trust that your pleasures and purposes in the world are beyond mine and that the thing you will do with what I have to give is greater than what I could do on my own with what I have. So how is it that you prepare yourself for the day when you'll give an account before God on that great and dreadful day? How is it that you prepare for that? Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So there are, there are some of you here who are believers, you have repented, you have believed the gospel, but the truth is, and when it comes to the managing of the things you've been entrusted, you tend to possess a little more than you should. You tend to see it all as yours and, and not as God's. Well, you need to repent of that. And there's some of you who walk in here and see your very lives as only your own and not belonging to God. You were bought with a price. You were created by God, and as creator, he has rights of ownership over your life. And not only that, but you were bought with a price by God. And you, have, you, are, you exist for his pleasure and his purposes alone. And you can either agree with him about that, or you can be at odds with him about that. But the truth remains, you exist for the pleasure and purposes of God alone. The time's fulfilled, the kingdom's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. What we do here each weekend at the close of our time in the word, our teaching together, is we, we symbolically respond by saying we believe the gospel. We remember the gospel by, by intaking again, receiving one more time physically the body and blood of Christ, the, the symbolic body of blood of Christ, as a way of saying, God, we continually receive you. We didn't just receive you one day way back when, but every, every day and every week we're continually dying to self and living to you because we're the sword of sacrifices that, that tend to crawl off the altar. And so this is a way for us to repent regularly and remind ourselves who we belong to. So in just a few minutes, we're going to sing and, and pass around communion elements. And uh, if you are a Christian and you're here today as a way of reaffirming your love for God and your passion to have your life uh, be uh, dedicated to his pleasure and purposes alone, I encourage you to partake. If you're not a Christian and you're here, I want to encourage you to just la let's, let those elements pass from you. Um, but if you are a Christian, uh, take those and repent and believe and enjoy uh, the work that God has in your life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Um, it's so powerful. I think about the verse that says it's like sharper than a two-edged sword. It goes right to the marrow, and boy, does it ever. I mean, like it just has this way of getting right down to the, all the heart of the matter. And so thank you, God, for giving it to us. It's like the most incredible gift that God could give men. Like to, to give us his heart, to give us your heart in writing in black and white that we can just see right in front of us and understand and know you. God, it is a treasure. Thank you, Lord, for, for entrusting us with your word. I pray that we'd be good stewards even of that. So help us, God. All our life is stewardship. All our life is responsibility to use what we have for your purposes and pleasure alone. God, use uh, us, we ask. We pray that you would look down on this world and you'd see a lot of people expending your resources on themselves, but you'd see among us a group of people that spend their resources for the, for the spreading of the gospel and the building of the church and the making known of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.